Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we're not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. And we are going to talk about drugs some more. We are. We are. So last week we went over the history of drug usage. And this week we're going to kind of highlight each presidential administration and their impact on what we now know as the war on drugs. The first thing- I was going to say, you're going to tell us what that starts with. (laughs) Yes, I am. This starts with the Harrison Narcotic Act, uh, which was instituted by Woodrow Wilson in 1914. It was a Democrat policy. Just going to start with that. (laughs) But the, the Harrison Act marked a definite shift in drug policy. It was really a layered legislation. The first layer really had a very good intent. It was based on an international response to the opium problems. A man named Charles Henry Brent, who was an American Episcopal bishop who served as a missionary in the Philippines, Um, Back in 1901, he convened a commission of inquiry known as the Brent Commission for the purpose of examining alternatives to a licensing system for opium addicts. The commission recommended that narcotics should be subject to international control. Those recommendations were endorsed by the United States. And in 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt called for an international conference, which eventually led to the International Opium Convention of 1912. This convention was the original basis for the Harrison Act. But unfortunately, people with racial fears utilized the act in an incredibly detrimental way. Because opium and cocaine were both unregulated at the time, the focus turned to cocaine. Although the point of the Harrison Act was was just to fight opium, the domestic application that was focused on cocaine really affected the what the newspaper termed as uh, quote unquote lower class Negroes. Many newspapers at the time latched onto a racist narrative that was really driven without evidence by Dr. Hamilton Wright, who was the first opium commissioner of the United States. Very inflammatory news reports told of, and I'm quoting here, I don't even like reading the quotes, but told of, quote unquote, Negroes driven by cocaine to exhibit superhuman strength and improved marksmanship. So apparently doing cocaine makes you a better shooter? I don't think that's true. It makes your pupils (laughs) dilate real bad Well, none of it was true. I mean, none of the reports were true, but that was just such a weird claim. Even the New York Times, which, you know, um, Trump says is a failing newspaper, ran a story entitled Negro Cocaine Fiends Are the New Southern Menace, Murder and Insanity Increasing Among Lower Class Blacks. So this was the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. The effect of this gross misapplication of the legislation, it plagues drug policy today. Well, from 1937 to 1945, under FDR, the Marijuana Tax Act, which was introduced by Robert Downton, a Democrat from North Carolina, <laughs> it was passed and it applied the same controls over marijuana as other narcotics. The Opium Poppy Control Act prohibited growing poppy without a license, and the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was enacted in 1938, giving the FDA full control over drug safety. 
Right. And that, I mean, the FDA was basically created in response to all the patent medicine issues that we talked about last week, right? Right. In the late 1800s, the public became aware of morphine additives and some medicine and a backlash against drug use began. Now, although marijuana was not initially regulated, the public's attitude began to shift. Morphine was made illegal, and a few decades later, marijuana was regulated. Ugh. The, <laughs> the Tax Marijuana Act did not in itself criminalize the possession or usage of cannabis, but did include penalties and enforcement provisions. Violation of these provisions could result in a fine of up to $2,000 and five years imprisonment. Wow. So, Basically, the extensive paperwork surrounding the use of the devil's lettuce for medical research made this process virtually impossible. Aha. Well, I know one of the drivers of the Marijuana Act was Harry Anslinger. He was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which laid the groundwork for the modern-day DEA. And he was really the first architect of the war on drugs. Anslinger was appointed in 1930, just as the prohibition of alcohol was beginning to crumble. You know, it was finally repealed in 1933, and he remained in power for an additional 32 years. Early on, he was actually on record, essentially saying that cannabis use was really no big deal. He called the idea that it made people mad or violent an absurd fallacy. But from the moment he took charge of the Bureau, Harry was aware of the weakness of his new position. A war on narcotics alone, which at the time were considered to be cocaine and heroin, were really only used by a tiny minority, and that wasn't enough to keep his department alive. So he shifted his approach to demonize cannabis. Anslinger also went with a very racist public ideology. The word marijuana itself was part of this approach. What was commonly known as cannabis until the early 1900s, he decided to call marijuana, a Spanish word more likely to be associated with Mexicans. He was able to do this because he was tapping into very deep anxieties in the culture that really had nothing to do with drugs, but he used language that attached drugs to already very cemented concerns, which was highly beneficial to him. The perspective that Anslinger brought regarding cannabis was so systemic that we're still working to root it out today. Well, let's jump ahead to the Truman administration. After they got done nuking Japan, mm -hmm. they passed the Durham-Humphrey Amendment, Hubert Humphrey, which right? established more specific guidelines for prescription drugs, habit forming, safety, and evaluation of new drugs. Right. Now, that same year in 51 also saw the Boggs Amendment, another Democrat. Jeez, <laughs> with my people. The Boggs Amendment was added to the Harrison Narcotic Act, mm -hmm. which brought about mandatory sentences for narcotics violations. Now, this bill required any drug that was habit-forming or potentially harmful to be dispensed under the supervision of a doctor as a prescription drug and must carry the statement, caution, federal law prohibits dispensing without prescription. Until this law, there was no requirement for any drug to be labeled for sale by prescription only. This amendment established the distinction between prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs. The Boggs Amendment was an enactment of federal laws which set mandatory sentences for drug-related offenses, including something as harmless as marijuana. 
a first offense, marijuana possession, carried a minimum sentence of two to ten years with a fine of up to $20,000. I'd still be in prison, for God's sake. (laughs) So we went from a $2,000 fine to a $20,000 fine. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, after that came the socially reactive Nixon administration and a heavy bent towards law and order. We've heard that recently, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Law and order when it when it came to drugs. To be fair, drugs really were a problem in 1971, even if the Nixon administration distorted the numbers tying drug addiction to crime. It really was still an issue. Shifting the conversation away from eradicating the root causes of crime and focusing solely on punishing the criminal, the whole law and order shtick was able to do two things. First, Nixon exonerated the white middle class from responsibility for drug-related violence that ravaged the inner cities. Second, he transformed the public image of the drug user into a dangerous threat to American civilization. When he shifted the public perception, it ultimately served to reinforce the necessity of Nixon's drug war. Basically, he was repeating what happened before. Right. Once addicts were no longer seen as sick victims of society or marginalized people, no one would really mind if they were simply locked up. In fact, the suggestion was that incarceration was actually for the nation's own good. Nixon also introduced the Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Control Act, which was crafted by Republican Benjamin Gilman, and this replaced and updated all previous laws. I believe it it replaced 50 different pieces of legislation that concerned narcotics and other dangerous drugs. The act also placed emphasis on law enforcement. Then Nixon ushered in the Drug Abuse Office and Treatment Act, which was sponsored by Democrat William Hathaway, and this established federally funded programs for prevention and treatment. He also brought in the Methadone Control Act and the Heroin Trafficking Act, which increased penalties for distribution, and the DEA was formed under Nixon. The goals of the DEA were to, number one, put an end to the interagency rivalries that undermined federal drug laws. Number two, to give the FBI its first significant role in drug enforcement. Number three, to provide enforcement efforts with those of state, local, and federal authorities, and and international as well. And Number four, to place a single administrator in charge of drug law enforcement in order to create accountability. And number five, to establish the DEA as a super agency needed to coordinate all federal efforts related to drug enforcement. Now, by 1975, drug abuse was escalating. So in response, President Ford set up the Domestic Council Drug Abuse Task Force, which doesn't spell out anything cool like we do today. I know. I think the first thing that I remember being spelled out that was cool was D.A.R.E., right? Yeah. They had it on all the police cars and the D.A.R.E. Bears. Or that was the Care Bears. I'm sorry. Never mind. No. (laughs) He set up this task force to assess the extent of drug abuse in America and recommended ways to handle it. The resulting report, the white paper. That seems racist. Well, no, it was right after the the Beatles wrote this. So, <laughs> <laughs> it concluded that all drugs are not equal, and enforcement should concentrate on drugs which have the highest addiction potential. 
Interestingly, the report deemed marijuana a minor problem, see, and declared that cocaine was not really a problem at all. See, that's where I wouldn't really trust the report because of that particular problem or that particular statement. Okay. Keep going. Don't cherry pick your reports, okay? (laughs) Now, cocaine, the report noted, is not physically addictive and usually does not result in serious social consequences such as crime. Hospital emergency room emissions or death. See, I like this report. See, I mean, I think we should confirm that with Lindsay Lohan. You know, the I whole think social I'm, implications part. I'm I, just gonna roll with this one. I'm gonna <laughs> use this one as proof from now on. I don't think that they used updated information. This was like prior to 1980, but. Well, specifically, the panel recommended the DEA and U.S. Customs lessen investigations of marijuana and cocaine smuggling. And give higher priority to heroin trafficking. Yes, now we're on to something. But but this is where it takes a turn, Karen. Mm -hmm. The lack of emphasis on marijuana and cocaine meant that marijuana smugglers and cocaine traffickers from Colombia faced minimal law enforcement opposition. Ultimately, it allowed the traffickers... From Colombia. (laughs) It allowed Juan Valdez... (laughs) <laughs> to lay the foundations for what would become the powerful Medellin and Cali drug cartels. Both ended up being significant threats to the U.S. in the late 70s and early 80s. And then we have Carter. Carter's so white rice. You know, he just, I don't know. Carter created the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Education Amendments, which um, set up education within the Department of Education. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's where you would set up education departments and Department of Education. (laughs) Which would make you feel very educated. It'd be like a tiny little room. This is the Department of Alcohol and Drug Education inside the Department of Education. (laughs) It's very educational. Yeah, it is. Prepare to be educated. And it confused Reagan so badly, he said, just say no. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Reagan, in 1984, Reagan's Drug Offenders Act... That was crafted know, and sponsored by no Robert Robert L. Doughton, who was a Democrat. And, and this legislation was, you know, pretty, pretty big. Set up special programs for offenders and organized treatment. The 80s also saw a lot of legislation that created several programs for prevention and treatment. In 1986, college basketball player Lynn Bias died of a cocaine overdose. But, I mean, you know, according to the report in the 70s, cocaine was fine. No, yeah. Crack People was didn't whack, die. but cocaine was fine. <laughs> well, Lynn Bias died of a cocaine overdose. And this highly politicized the drug debate in the, in the, during a midterm election year. So, you know, when something happens in a midterm election year, right. that's what you hear about all the time. In fairness, he had a heart problem. Lynn okay, Bias well, did. the he public shouldn't, outcry- He shouldn't have been doing cocaine. Are you finished interrupting me or do I need to give you some more time to talk? Go ahead. I'm just (laughs) saying you can't blame cocaine when somebody has a heart problem. I can do what I want. The public outcry led Reagan to sign the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. (laughs) I love this part. Which allocated funds to new prisons, drug education, and treatment. But it really its main result was to create mandatory minimum sentences. This ended up disproportionately affecting African-Americans and is still really creating 
just ridiculous sentencing disparity today. And this is why I said I loved it. It's not because it created racial disparity. That, that's not why. What I love is that we discovered in their research that the Anti-Drug Act, which is incredibly significant in the war on drugs that we're dealing with today, it had long-lasting implications for criminal justice. It was drafted and sponsored by Democrat James Wright Jr. Yeah, I think he got ran out on a route. Anyway, Reagan signed it. He'd sign anything that was put in front of you. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I found all these articles, like one was from the ACLU talking about how this was monumentally damaging, you know, that Reagan was mon monumentally damaging to people. And it was sponsored and drafted by a Democrat. Fine. So- in 1994, another Democrat, President Clinton, passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which the administration presented as both tough and tender, tough and smart on crime. The bill was introduced by Democrat Jack Brooks. You're just going to quit beating the dead horse on that one. I am just reporting the facts as I see them. Okay. They're right there. So Continue. It increased drug treatment programs and gun safety laws, but it also allocated more money for prisons and issued harsher sentences, including the notorious three strikes law. 24 states passed three strikes laws between 1993 and 1995. Well, in 2004, President Bush decided he was going to crack down on these people, mm -hmm. and he introduced the Prisoner Rehabilitation Initiative. Yeah, totally big crackdown. Yeah. That eventually became the Second Chance Act in 2008. This act, sponsored by Rob Portman from Ohio, focused on reentry, drug treatment, and mentoring. Focused on compassionate release as opposed to angrily throwing them out the door like bouncers no, at a bar. No. Do you know what compassionate release is? I do not. I mean, it can only compare it to angry. I mean, just release. If you're getting released, what the hell do you care if they're being nice no, or mean or whatever? Compassionate release is if they are ill, like with a deadly disease and they let them die at home or if they have a family, an immediate family member who's dying of something like a child that's dying oh, okay. of something and they let the prisoner go home and be on house arrest. Sounds weak on crime sentence. to me. Well, anyway... <laughs> Well, you're a so Democrat, so you want to be tough on crime. Daggone right, I do. <laughs> took so long to get the act passed because Republicans charged the Bush administration as being soft on crime. And that's it's why really we have all the problems we do today. Because Bush was soft on crime. He was soft on crime. Uh-huh. I can't believe it took from 04 to 08 to get this passed. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes. It's so much about optics and public perception. It is. It's just, it, it's amazing how many lives are affected because optics need to look a certain way. Well, that's politics. And this was very, very fair legislation to really, truly help people. And Republicans didn't want to help get it passed because they wanted to appear hard on crime because they wanted to out-tough the Clinton administration, who had been very tough on crime, and Republicans weren't going to let a Democrat make them look soft. And a lot of people suffered needlessly because of that. It's just incredibly frustrating. Clinton was crazy on crime. I mean, he had, I think he put 100,000 police. I mean, it was like a cop on every corner. You couldn't do anything right. back in that right. day. 
<laughs> you would know. <laughs> that was not you my have, favorite time. I don't like for, for firsthand experience. I there. did, yeah. In 2010, President Obama passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which was introduced by Democrat Dick Durbin. And this reduced the disparity in sentences between crack and powder cocaine. Stop. Obama- Stop. Thunder won that game. Did they really? 107 to 99. Oh my gosh. That is insane. Yeah, that is insane. Continue. The Obama administration also sought to employ more pardons and divert nonviolent offenders to treatment rather than prison. Also, in 2014, Rand Paul called for conservatives to go back to a more compassionate and racially fair view on crime during the CPAC. But now we have the Trump administration, and they again are taking a very hardline drug policy. In fact, so hardline that some of his rhetoric is reminiscent of early, early history on drug policy. He doesn't so. want to lock them up. He wants to line them up. Line them up. <laughs> he wants firing squads for these guys. It's insane. I mean, I uh, I don't even, I can't. Well, there is some hope. There's some okay. proposed legislation that should satisfy us compassionate people on the left. The Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2017, it's pending, probably mm-hmm. won't get put through. But it contains things like reducing and restricting enhanced sentencing for prior drug felonies, broadening of the existing safety valve, which is an early release type of thing. Okay. Um, Limitation on application of the 10-year mandatory minimum. Okay. So as a liberal, does does that sound pretty good to you? Do you like that? I like it. I like it. Okay. Do you know who introduced it? Don't care because I'm sure it's a Republican (laughs) if you're asking me. (laughs) <laughs> it was. It was Republican Chuck Grassley. You know so, why? From Grassley. Iowa. There you go. <laughs> that was good. I'll give you that. That was good. So we will be continuing on with our criminal justice series next week. But as far as the history of drug policy goes. That is all we have to say about that. Yes. We would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. We would also really appreciate you dropping us a positive review. Yes. We have a pretty active Facebook group if you'd like to join. You can find us on Facebook at Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. And we'd also like to thank our moderators for everything they do to help maintain the discourse there. The best moderators ever. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rants Reason. And if you'd like to help us offset the costs of the show, we do have a Patreon page. You can find us on there as Rants and Reason. We really, really appreciate all the support that you give us, such as word of mouth recommendations, shares on social media, and iTunes reviews. And retweets. Get those retweets out, man. We do love, love the retweets, and we really need the iTunes reviews. And we do appreciate our Patreon sponsors. We had a few this time. I'm I'm so excited. It's just such an honor it, when people do that. I just thank you guys so much. Well, it really is, it is an honor. It is. It's very nice that people would decide to help the show. Jennifer and Anon, Stephen, yeah. Ben from They Walk Among Us, Jeremy from Podcasts We Listen To, Timmy from History Dweebs, Austin. John Payne, who you really should check this out, um, his podcast, Weekly Wrap-Up, and 
Rudy the Wonder Dog, the world's most there dangerous canine. <laughs> we always like to end the show with unlikely friends. And today we have Mary Madeline and Donna Brazil. Usually Mary Madeline is mentioned as an unlikely pair because she's married My man, to James Carville. Go Carville. Yes, yes, who is a Democrat and she's a Republican. So, but Madeline and Brazil are also very, very good friends. Madeline is a Republican political commentator who was a deputy campaign manager for George H. Bush way back in 92. Brazil is a Democratic political strategist who managed Al Gore's presidential campaign and was the previous head of the DNC. So Brazil reflected on how they met with back when she worked for George Herbert Bush and I worked for Michael Dukakis, there were only four or five female operatives. When you're at a presidential debate and there's only a handful of women, you get to know them. And Madeline described their friendship with, yeah, we're the type of TV figures whose disagreements are fiery. But consider this. In 2012, CNN thought we were in New Hampshire, but we had really snuck home to watch an LSU football game. And then Brazil added, we became close after Hurricane Katrina, no question. She and Madeline were on the board of the Louisiana Recovery Authority. And they stay friends because they vacation together. In 2013, they went to Italy. They attended Mardi Gras together. And they go to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival every year. Sometimes they even go to Catholic Mass together. Says Madeline, we agree on what matters most in life family, and faith. If they can do it, we can too. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you.